In the pantheon of children's books, there is none more prolific than a simplistic goodnight story that takes the time to wish a goodnight to everything the child loves most. This is the story of Goodnight Moon. This is Toys for Us. All of my Hello, and welcome back to the Toys R Us podcast, the podcast where we take you to the deepest wells of your memory to dive in and discover the things that made you tick as a child. My name is Richard Hunt, and with me once again is the butthead to my beavis, Heather. Am I? Am I the butthead? I am. Yeah, you are. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think about it, and I was like, yeah, out of the two of us, you're definitely beavis. Yeah. I'm definitely butthead. For sure. For sure. 100%. Um, I'd like to welcome everyone back and thank you for being patient with us because, as you know, anxiety is a real son of a bitch and sometimes you can do nothing but drown in it. Mm-hmm. But, like Modest Mouse before us, we'll all float on. And this week, we're floating into the history of a piece of media we've all been lovingly subjected to. That being said, are you ready to dive in? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that (laughs) this episode is one of these episodes that I started to do this podcast to begin with, because there is no way in sweet fuck I ever would have predicted anything that happened in this episode. You have to stop taunting me. Everyone needs to understand that Rick has been taunting me for like 24 hours. Like, oh my god. He's basically just like live blogging his writing experience, but not telling me what he's doing or what it's about or what's going on. And I'm just like about to block you. So just tell me what you're doing. Okay, we'll get there. Uh, We start our story in 1910 in the Greenpoint neighborhood of Brooklyn, where we meet up with a couple that, for all accounts, fucking hated each other. Robert okay. Bruce Brown and Maud Margaret Johnson Brown. Okay. These two just welcome to the world their second daughter, an eventual middle child, uh, little sister to Roberta Rauch, and older sister to Benjamin Gratz. Um, and her name is Margaret Wise Brown. Hmm. Now, her brother's name is Benjamin Gratz, and he's named after their grandfather, who was in... Uh, just a big advocate against slavery. Okay. He was like a general in Kentucky. And a big advocate against slavery. Good. So already you're like, okay. Respectable. Uh, the Browns were like stupid wealthy. 
Uh, that's the main reason that mom and pop stayed together, because they worked better together and their money was tied to that relationship. So they're more like business partners than like a married couple. Basically, yeah. And it's like 1910. They're in Brooklyn, so odds are they're fucking Catholic. There ain't no, there's no fucking divorce, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Uh, her father, Robert, was an executive of the American Manufacturing Company, makers of rope and bagging for the maritime trade. Her mother, Maud, had been Robert's childhood playmate in Kirkwood, Missouri. So it's like, at this point, they're just like... You ever I see guess. That, you ever see that Family Guy clip where it was like Danny DeVito proposing to Rio Perlman? Definitely not. Just like Danny DeVito got Rhea Perlman. I don't know, Danny. Look, it's either me or nobody. Sold. So, <laughs> 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 like, a little bit like that. Um, both parents trace their American ancestry to pre-Revolutionary War Virginia, where Robert's forebears, in particular, had flourished in church and government service. Okay. Her childhood was spent in Whitestone Landing on Long Island, where she had many pets, including, quote, 30-odd rabbits, and one dog of her own, plus six borrowed dogs. She borrowed dogs. Well, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like, ah, uh, yeah, that's mine. I'll, I'll be taking that. What the fuck? <laughs> okay. Uh, it was a great thing to be born into the Brown family, a young Margaret soon learned, and in the perfectionistic, emotionally chilly world of the Brown household, each child vied for distinction. Margaret's older brother, Benjamin Gratz, who just went by Gratz, was a shrewd problem solver like their father. Their younger sister, Roberta's intellectual prowess was more broadly based. She was always a brilliant scholar and dutiful daughter, and she actually skipped two grades um, on her way to Vassar, which is like a really posh school. Uh, wedged uncomfortably between these two were uh, was Margaret, and she carved a niche for herself as being the family storyteller, trickster, and daydreamer. Hmm. Which, you know, that's like typical middle child shit. Uh, you don't really necessarily fit in, you know? So yeah, it's like, I... already your parents don't fucking like each other, and you're the middle child? Yeah, good luck. Yeah. In 1923, while her parents traveled abroad in India, Margaret attended Chateau Bri- This is like the dumbest fucking mm? name for a boat for a boarding school, okay? Okay. Chateau Brilliantmont. Okay, that's just lazy. Right? Mm-hmm. Like you couldn't come up with anything more like intelligent that for a fancy you- boarding school? Cool. That's almost an oxymoron because you just like showed everyone how stupid you are. Yeah, Chateau so brilliant. brilliant Mont. Okay, mm-hmm. I'd be like, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. It's like a villain school called Bad Geysius or something. Exactly. It's like, uh, I think we should probably look for another one on Yelp. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Nineteen twenty-three Yelp, which was literally right. just somebody yelling out of a window. Yeah, it's called Holler. <laughs> Exactly. Yes. Beautiful. Uh, this was in La Suisse, Switzerland. Okay. She ended up staying there for two years, and in 1925, she ended up at the Kew Forest School back in Queens. 
She lasted one year there, before she finally ended up at the girls' preparatory school, Dana Hall, in Massachusetts. Um, And it was there that Margaret, now known as Tim, for the golden color of her long, flowing blonde hair like Timothy Hay, had had at last met teachers capable of channeling her freeform, intuitive style of attention and of making learning stick. So, you know, hey, I'm Tim. Yeah, I feel like that's just, it's just an example of how mean kids are. It's like, they couldn't call her, like, Goldilocks or something that's, like, kind of cute. They're like, no, we're gonna call her Tim so that she doesn't get a big head about anything. (laughs) She's all hot and shit. We need to take her down a few pegs. Because they were jealous, you know? We're gonna fucking neg her by calling her rabbit. We can't let her know that she's hot, so we have to just give her an awful nickname. Tim. Mm -hmm. I don't think so, Tim. (laughs) (laughs) i can't believe how often that occurs on across the board of our podcast i know the fucking tim allen i can't help it it's so dumb it's so dumb it's definitely the ramblings of a man that was heavily addicted to coke (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah in in retrospect it's like Oh. oh, that makes a lot of fucking sense. Yeah. He just like, it's like Jimmy Neutron got a blast, but he's just going back to cocaine brain. Uh-huh. I don't think so, Jim. <laughs> like, <are you> okay? <laughs> it's like his tell like his wife is like oh he oh he's doing the grunt he's on <laughs> yeah he's oh man cocaine days shit like, oh, all right boy. kids we gotta hide <laughs> good I guess we'll stay in at my mom's house tonight <laughs> wow um then as an undergraduate of holland's college she received her first encouragement to write on graduating from Hollins in 1932, however, her literary aspirations remained of the vaguest sort. Three more years passed before, lacking an alternative, she enrolled in the teacher training program of New York's progressive Bureau of Education Experiments. Which sounds way more badass than it actually is. Bureau, Bureau of Educational Experiments? That sounds like you're about to do some shit. It sounds like you're using children as lab rats. Mm-hmm. Um, there, as a part of the experimentally based training routine, Brown composed her first children's stories and found her vocation. From her inspired teacher, Bank Street founder Lucy Sprague Mitchell, Brown received important lessons in craft and professionalism and a thorough grounding in Mitchell's controversial ideas about writing for the young. Mitchell's study of the patterns of early childhood development had led her during the second decade of the 20th century to ask whether there were not certain types of stories and poems that corresponded most closely to the needs and abilities of children at each developmental stage. Because, you know, for for the most part, now you can get a good range of different children's books. But back then, they were all like, kids are dumb. Here's a dumb book for a dumb kid. (laughs) Yeah. Like, all kids like this dumb shit, right? Guess so. 
They just but, like phoned it in really hard. They're like, we can write anything, and kids will eat it up because they're stupid. Exactly, but her 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 mentor saw things differently and saw like, well, no, kids like two to two to five are going to need a different type of book than kids seven and nine. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, research into this question had prompted her to reject many of the reigning library establishment's basic assumptions about literature for the younger ages. Children under the age of six, Mitchell had found, had no special affinity for fantastic tales about castles and kings or for traditional nursery nonsense, as the librarians uh, assumed. The very young seemed far more at home with stories about the modern-day world, which to them was fantastic. Mitchell laid this out and several other equally arresting ideas in the introduction and notes to her Here and Now storybook of 1921 an age-graded anthology that provoked a lively debate on publication and later served as a model for Brown and others. By the mid-1930s, with a talented protege like Brownie, which was now uh, Margaret's nickname, mm-hmm. which is definitely better than Tim, I think. It, it is. It's Brownie's not great, cute. but it's an upgrade, it's, yeah. It's definitely a cute upgrade. Um, Mitchell was ready to advance her children's literature project several steps further. First, in 1936, she enlisted Brown and a small group of others to collaborate with her on a sequel anthology, Another Here and Now Storybook, 1937, which reaffirmed in somewhat more flexible terms Mitchell's critique of the librarian's unscientific and, as she thought, essentially sentimental point of view. Then, in 1937, Mitchell established the Bank Street Writers uh, Laboratory as a permanent training ground for authors in the here and now vein. Uh, Brown was a founder, a founding member. Uh, and then the following year, she helped launch the small publishing firm of William R. Scott, Inc., with Margaret Brown as an editor, as a vehicle for sending here and now style books out into the world. Uh, as Mitchell's editor, Brown was in a position to champion the innovative work of others and to publish herself. Uh, she did both. I submitted, she later recalled, of the noisy books, we, that is, Brown again, accepted it. From the start, her own books led the list of fledgling firms' critical and commercial successes, limited, those, limited as those successes were by the wariness of the library establishment to books cooked in the laboratory of progressive education. You'll see, uh, I'll, I'll touch more on it in the fact in the box, but a lot of libraries in New York were very fucking picky about what got put into the library. Whoa. Whereas now, like, libraries, you could pretty much, th- every book is there. I guess, like, libraries used to be a lot more, like, lucrative. Like, everyone went to the library back yeah. in the day. Nowadays, it's, like, mostly students and, like, old people. Exactly. Yeah. There's no in-between. Mm-hmm. But back then, it was like, if the librarian, if that particular librarian didn't like your shit, you weren't getting in the in the library. Ooh. As an author. So it's like, oh, okay. Drunk on power, those librarians. Exactly. Exactly. Um, The roster of Brown's editorial discoveries, which included illustrators Clement Hurd, author and artist Esifer Slobdinka, and Charles Shaw, and others, was impressive. Her most spectacular... um, finding, however, came with the publication of Gertrude Stein's first children's fantasy, The World is Round, in 1939, which Scott commissioned at Brown's prompting. 
Stein's robust delight in wordplay and fascination with the expressive possibilities of rhythmic repetition were features of the voluble expertise avant-garde work of Brown, or no, work that Brown found distinctly childlike. Again, feeding into the idea that, you know, kids, while young, are not stupid. Right. Uh, let's see. Steinian echoes reverbed or reverberated through Brown's own noisy book series, which grew to eight volumes, and Red Light, Green Light, published under the name Golden MacDonald in 1944. Okay. Uh, the important book, 1949, Four Fur Feet in 1961, and many others. Mitchell's influence on Brown's writing and ed- editorial work was thus various and immense, but Brown had two incisive in imagination and was too fine a writer not to have searched out the limits of her mentor's ideas and to have ventured beyond them. Mitchell had based her model of here and now development on the outfees of the child's changing capacity for cognition and perception. Brown's first published book, When the Wind Blew, was a melancholy tale about an old woman living by herself, signaling its author's interest in exploring the emotional realm as well. Uh, it's like... A kind of sad and cute book where this lady just lives with her cat. Oh. That sounds more sad than cute. I'm sorry. It it is more sad than cute, but again, it's like, yeah, kids are dumb, but you gotta gotta get them ready for depression, because honey, there's a big storm coming. (laughs) It's like some of these kids are gonna grow up and have really sad lives, so we're gonna just go ahead and get ahead Mm -hmm. of this thing. I'm just gonna jump that gun real quick. Uh, in The Runaway Bunny, Little Fur Family, The Little Island, Wait Till the Moon is Full, and Mr. Dog, Brown fashioned poignant fables of the shifting balance of the child's deep-seated yearnings for security and independence. And in books like Little Fur Family, The Little Island, Fox Eyes, and The Dark Wood of the Golden Birds, she took further exception with Here and Now through her wholehearted embrace of fairy tale elements and magic and mystery. All of her books have been elusive quality that was that was simply just margaret wise brown style simplicity directness humor unexpectedness respect for the reader and a sense of important of a sense of importance of living margaret felt that quote a book can make a child laugh or feel clear and happy-headed as he follows a simple rhythm to its logical end it can jog him with the unexpected and comfort him with the familiar Left him for a few minutes from his own problems of shoelaces that won't tie and busy parents and mysterious clock time into a world of a bug or a bear or a bee or a boy living in a timeless world of a story. If I've been lucky, I hope I have written a book simple enough to come near to that timeless world. Which is admirable for an author, I think. Totally. Uh, While she was writing and learning and exploring the world around her, Margaret was also exploring her sexuality. She had a series of wild love affairs, most notably of which are the following. In 1940, after after several broken engagements, Brown entered psychoanalysis. She also met Michael Strange. Michael Strange is the pen name for John Barrymore's wife, Blanche. Uh Uh-oh. Ooh. Which leads us to a slight detour here. Mm-hmm. 
The relationship, which began as a mentoring one, eventually became romantic and included cohabitating at 10 Gracie Square in Manhattan, beginning in 1943. Oh my. Michael Strange was 20 years Brown Sr. The two loved as passionately as they fought. Strange was moody and Brown was needy. And Strange considered herself an intellectual, while Brown had a, quote, frivolous career as a children's book author. Uh, the whole time, by the way, Strange was married to John Barrymore. Right. Needless to say, carrying on a lesbian affair at the time, when that can get you committed to a mental hospital, was dangerous. But for Brown and Strange, it was worth taking a risk. The two women moved into the Upper East Side's Town Gracie Square together and lived in a state of bliss, at least until their next fight. During one breakup... As Brown recuperated from a broken heart and a surgical operation at her house in Maine that she lovingly referred to as the only house, she wrote a poem about a girl who moved from the country to the city to soothe herself, and to soothe herself she imagined her old room. The poem became The Room. Um, this, this led me into a extremely deep Michael Strange rabbit hole. Okay. And by extremely deep... I'm planning on doing, like, a five to ten part, completely separate podcast about Michael Strange. Oh, shit. Yeah, like, it's fucking insane. (laughs) Blanche Marie Louise Olerix, which is her full name, was a fucking badass bisexual bitch. Okay. She was married to John Barrymore for five years. Okay. She is also Diana Barrymore's mother. Diana Barrymore is Drew Barrymore's aunt. Uh, and, and through help from my friend Mallory, fucking going through this family tree, Margaret Brown essentially fucked Drew Barrymore's step-grandmother. Wow. Yeah. Uh... Their stormy 10-year sexual relationship, marked by the older woman's repeated and vicious uh, denigration of Brown and her profession, ended when Strange died of leukemia in late 1950. And when I say stormy, I fucking mean it. Okay. Strange often, marked, or often mocked Margaret for her, quote, baby stories. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, all of Michael Strange's poetry is like Helga from Hey Arnold hating how much she loves Arnold. <laughs> oh my god let me um i'm gonna read you my favorite okay okay yeah and and you can see like holy shit okay does she call her football head and everything yeah yes you know the the poem is called move it football head basically uh (laughs) here it goes for what have you sought my love Along those flashing wastes of passion, who move so wearily as the dawn's unwilling step, overtempt in rooms of unlimited woe. Oh, what crucifix you, tortured into nailing yourself against, that your arms are become so attenuate as those stark supplicating limbs of nightmare. I wonder, have you assaulted life in darkness and whispering, I need you so, oh, let me. Yet when the spear, entering, nailing you into a frantic submission, you crying out from the very center nerve of such ecstasy, I have fear. Since you selling them into bondage, what you might surmise only, and for the witchery of moments, 
since you're denying of yourself more than you could have before, or more than you could have known before self-betrayal. And all in order to induce those scarlet wings of appalling lips to glisten close across your mouth. Yet, when this tease of pleasure, titillating curious, truth-stained exclamations out of you, and their sense languishing, mateless, unanswered along the air, ah, then you turning to regard, the gracious youth of your sleeping love, alongside your waking, ageless heart. Okay, I could have sworn I burned my seventh grade notebook. <laughs> I know! I know. Wow. Uh, here's another one. <clears throat> I, brooding long on the desolate doorway of shadowy hopes, afraid of turning backward into the gothic chill of truth. So I, gazing frantically forward and nourishing my eye upon irrelevant flushings of mirage, hoping some day a cure from loving you, from a cure from loving you, you provoking in me forever more love, love perhaps so inexhaustible since born out of those blasted recesses where you have dealt me pain. Ah, the love. The double love we give to those who have wounded us horribly. For such love, including the passion of hatred, is imperishable. Toxic AF. Super toxic. Yeah, it's real bad. Super fucking toxic. All the best poetry comes from the most toxic relationships. Oh, yeah. I mean, let's just talk about fucking Fleetwood Mac and rumors. (laughs) This is just that. Mm -hmm. Um... From fucking a Barrymore to fucking a Rockefeller, Margaret Wise Brown shortly thereafter fell in love with James Pebble Rockefeller. Pebble. Pebble. That's his nickname. Oh, okay. Uh, And she was all set to marry him until tragedy struck. Oh, Pebble Rock. I get it. Mm Mm-hmm. Before the wedding... Margaret Wise Brown was stricken with acute abdominal pain and underwent surgery while on holiday in France. She remained bedridden for weeks. Happily anticipating her release from the hospital, a nurse asked how she was feeling. She proceeded to fling her leg upward in a jaunty gesture, saying, I feel grand. However, she dislodged a blood clot, and within moments she was dead. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I wanted to get all this out of the way before I got to this week's topic, which is Margaret's most well-known material. During a point where she was back in Strange's arms, the poem The Room returned to her in a dream along with images of her downstairs neighbor's apartment. It's bright green walls, red furniture with yellow trim. The result was Goodnight Moon. Oh. The plot could not be simpler. A young bunny says goodnight to the objects and creatures in a green-walled bedroom, drifting gradually to sleep as the lights dim and the moon glows in a big-picture window. Goodnight Moon has sold more than 48 million copies since it was published in 1947. It has been translated into at least a dozen languages, um, from Spanish to Hmong. Is that how you say that? Hmong? Yeah. Hmong? Yeah. Uh, and countless parents around the world have read it to their sleepy children. Goodnight Moon, for which she recruited her close friend Clement Hurd to provide the color-saturated paintings that have been that have since become iconic, went on sale for $1.75, which is about $21 today, in the fall of 1947. Uh, the New York Times praised the combination of art and language, urging parents that the book should 
proved very effective in the case of two wide-awake youngsters. Two months after the publication of Goodnight Moon, Michael Strange collapsed at the Savoy Hotel. Told it was due to exhaustion, Strange was on the road with her show pairing great works and literature with music, she learned uh, previously in 1948 that she was suffering from leukemia. Strange uh, attributed her bad lot to her sinful behavior with Brown, and the two broke up again. Oh my god. But, but when her health deteriorated to the point that she needed to be hospitalized, she called upon her former lover. Standing vigil outside Strange's hospital room, Brown heard her ex call out for only one name, Margaret. Before Strange's death, Margaret promised that she would memorialize her in writing. In one diary entry, a rare quote in this book that uses far too many of Brown's words, she wrote of her lover, One who has dared to be gloriously good and gloriously bad in one life. There was no limbo for her. Oh. Yeah. It's not exactly high praise, <laughs> but it's honest. It's very honest. Um, you know who else has no limbo? Who? It's Facty. The fact in the box. Uh, just a few months before she died, the 42-year-old Brown, who at the time was engaged to a much younger man, you know, Pebbles, drafted a will. In it, she left the royalties to Goodnight Moon and 60 other, 68 other titles to a young boy named Albert Clark. She had befriended his mother through a colleague at Bank Street and lived near the family on East 71st Street in Manhattan. Uh, even before Clark started receiving his inheritance, the first payment made when he was 21, which was $75,000, he had a few run-ins with the law. Ultimately, constant windfall from Goodnight Moon's sales funded his bad and often illegal behavior, drug possession, and attempts to kidnap his own children, setting him up for a life of crime and estrangement for the rest of his family. Oh man, such a wholesome so, book. And so man. she definitely fucking monkey-pawed him on accident. She's Oops. like, you know what? I'm gonna give all my money to this kid. He's gonna change the world. And all he did was PCP and try to kidnap his own kids. <laughs> um, her home, the only house, had no indoor plumbing, no electricity, no heat, no telephone. Which is like, uh, okay. It's pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, Margaret had an interesting way of conducting research for her children's books. In one instance, she stayed the night inside of a barn so that she could better understand the nighttime experiences of farm animals. That night, she yeah. unintentionally fell asleep on a stack of hay, and then she and a farmhand had a terrible fright the next morning when he, unaware of her presence, narrowly missed spearing her to death with the pitchfork. Oh. <laughs> I know. Um, what a... Was, nope. I, I don't know. I was about to say, what a way to go, and then we're getting back into Brooks and... Done uh, <laughs> and also, that, not the first pitchfork death that we've covered yeah, ever. So, yeah, you know. <laughs> not that there was a death, but go on. <clears throat> there was an eventual death. Yes, mm. but not by pitchfork this no. time. Uh, Margaret and some of her friends had a funny tradition of declaring any day to be Christmas and would throw an impromptu party to celebrate. 
Okay, this group of friends it. jokingly refer to themselves as the Bird Brain Club. Okay. I'm with it too. Yeah, that's yeah, that's my crowd. Yeah, love it. Um, in nineteen forty six she was quoted as saying, Well, I don't especially like children either, at least not as a group. I won't let anybody get away with anything just because he's little. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, kids are assholes. Yeah, yeah. That's the funny thing about doing books, is a lot of them just don't like kids. It's so weird. It's so strange to me. Like, I'm not the biggest fan of kids, and therefore I would never write children's books. I don't understand how, like, you get yeah. into writing children's books if you're not just fired the fuck up about children. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Shel Silverstein did not like kids. She didn't like kids. I mean... Shel Silverstein's work, like, is it really for kids? Oh, Shel Silverstein, and I love the guy to death, his shit is fucked up. Yeah, it's really, really dark. There is some fucked up shit. But you know, like I said, honey, you've got a big storm coming. Yeah. Uh, Influential New York Public Library children's librarian Anne Carol Moore was perhaps the highest profile opponent to Bank Street and Brown's Here and Now style. A champion of the fairy tale, Anne Moore often butted heads with Brown, and although she had retired by the time Goodnight Moon was published, her successor, Frances Sayers, stayed true to the party line and refused to put the book on shelves. An internal review at the library accused the book the book of being quote The book <laughs> Fuck you. The book ha ah, ah. The One book, book. <laughs> Oh god uh, accused the book of being Quote, an unbearably sentimental piece of work. Okay. The library finally reversed its original decision and began stocking the book in 1973. 26 years after it was published. Shit. I know. That's rough. On her writing process, she is quoted as saying the following. The first draft of a brown book is usually written in wild, enthusiastic haste and lost, unintelligible, soft pencil on whatever scraps of paper are available. The backs of grocery bills, shopping list, old envelopes. I finished the rough draft in 20 minutes, and then I spent two years polishing. Wow. Which, relatable. Um, in a newly revised edition of the book, which has lulled children to sleep for nearly 60 years, the publisher HarperCollins has digitally altered the photograph of uh, Clement Hurd the illustrator, to remove a cigarette that was in his hand. Oh. Like, oh, come on, man. You're, that's doing the most. Yeah, and you would know. I would definitely know. Um, Margaret also dated the Prince of Spain, Juan Carlos, in the Jesus. summer of 1940. <laughs> yeah. I, I told just, you. This woman has game. She has mad game. I want to know her secret mad game you can't even fucking hate you're just like wow I'm, you're just like i'm very oh. impressed yeah like damn lady get it <laughs> she and fuck she got it <laughs> <laughs> she definitely fucking got it yeah, she um did. uh there are just a fuckload of parodies of good night moon oh yeah uh including if this will load. Goodnight Unicorn, Goodnight Moron, Goodnight Lab, Goodnight Trump, Goodnight Democracy, Goodnight Obama, Goodnight Bush, Goodnight Mom, Goodnight Westeros, Goodnight Keith Moon, Goodnight Dune, Goodnight Dude, 
Good night, boobs. Good night, Mr. Darcy. Good night, husband. Good night, wife. Fuck you, son. Good night, Forest Moon. Uh, good night, Nanny Cam. Good night, Brew. Good morning, Brew. Good night, Pond. Good night, Goon. Uh, good night, Bat Cave. Good night, Loon. Good night, Marketers. Good night, Zuma. Good night, Moon Colony. Good night, Pros. Just, I mean, okay. anything that you could think of, basically, there's a fucking parody of it. I'm going to write one that's loosely based on the movie and call it Goodnight Lagoon. Oh. That's going to be my parody, and it's going to be amazing. Okay. I'm interested in seeing that. Me too. Better fucking do it. I'm doing it. Let me send you a picture now of Michael Strange. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I... Yeah. Get you a girl who can do both. Right? I Yeah. I love yeah. women in, like, men's clothing where they're, like, androgynous. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Not only, not only did she go by Michael Strange as a pen name, she eventually just fucking changed her name to Michael Strange. So she's, like, probably, like, gender fluid. Yeah. Yeah. Like, on, on her tombstone... It's the whole family's tombstone. But she's listed as Michael Strange. Yeah. she. I mean, she could have been trans. Like, she could have been non-binary. Like, yeah, yeah. She probably wasn't, you know... She. I, I bet you she didn't identify as female all the time. That's my guess. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's pictures of her with John Barrymore. And they're both basically wearing the same fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> like, awesome. Let me see if I can find a picture for you. And and like I'm dead ass serious. I've I've already picked the name for the podcast and everything. Oh yeah? Yeah. I, I'm I'm hyped. Like I you can ask Alex because Alex was up and I was like uh, just hitting him with fucking Listen. This is what's happening. And we're both just losing our mind over the big dick energy oh, yeah. of Michael Strange. Oh yeah. I love it. I'm here for it. Um, let me send the picture. Oh yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, yeah, I love it's it. It's fucking great. Yeah, yeah. So I, I will. The name of the podcast is going to be "Sincerely Yours, Michael Strange." That's cute, right? Mm-hmm. I, I've already done like a fuckload of dumbass research, including finding out that her. Great granddaughter is also an artist. Oh. And I have emailed her great granddaughter to ask oh, for an interview. That's nice. Yeah. And Alex is like, why the fuck is everybody in this family so hot and androgynous? <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> like, even Drew Barrymore is bisexual. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. fucking family goals. Right? But, I mean, at the end of the day, Margaret Wise Brown fucked her way into the most powerful, like, families in America. Good for her. Right? Yes. Just to die from a fucking blood clot. She's like Poison Ivy. She's out here just, like, (laughs) using her wiles to get what she wants. Hey, you know And not giving one single fuck. Not giving a fuck at all. Not a fuck to give. 
I mean, and you saw her too. Like the picture I sent you last night. Like she had like Hollywood starlet beauty yeah, too. Yeah, she's really pretty. Like man, just this whole big fucking dick energy. Oh yeah, I love it. I love a torrid affair. Oh hell yeah! The fact that the fact that they were married. John Barrymore and Michael Strange. The fact that they were married, and somehow still, she was able to live with Margaret. Well, he's probably out doing movies and stuff, and doesn't know what the fuck she's up to. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe he knew all about it. I don't know. Either way, and, like... And when I was writing this, uh, we were talking first about how Margaret gives off top energy but then the more i learned about michael strange i'm like oh no 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 yeah michael, michael strange was definitely the top in this definitely situation the top yeah i mean they could both be switches that's true that's true but the fact that a michael strange is 20 years older and b she sure. always tr- talked her down about being a children's author probably the top yeah definitely the top <laughs> So yeah, that's that's the fucking wild story behind goddamn Goodnight Moon. Yeah, I never would have guessed that. Never in my fucking wildest dreams. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I love that. I was like, oh, Goodnight Moon. Everybody knows that. It's like, probably oh, just like a really sweet, soft little story. <laughs> nope. <laughs> this will be quick and easy. It's just like my story last week. Yeah fucking death and bisexuality and fucking Barrymore's and Rockefeller's. I'm like, wow. Alright. Thoroughly surprised. Uh, So yeah, uh, we're fucking back. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's a wild, wild episode to come back to, but, you know, that's just the fucking way 2020 is. That is true. Big 2020 energy here. PCP. Yep. Uh, (laughs) If you like what you heard and learned, you can consider doing the following. You can follow us on all social media. We're at Toys R Us Podcast across the board. You can leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes or basically wherever you can do so. Or you can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash Toys R Us Podcast. Until next time, remember, sometimes you just have to fuck your way through two powerful families. And remember, you will always be a Toys R Us kid. I'd like to take the time out to thank our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. So, thank you to Jeremy, Jessica, Nicole, Amy, Nicole, Nicole, John, Juanita, Sabrina, Shannon, and Steven. Thanks a bunch, guys. Good night.